everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. Memory had kind of become more and more of an, a thing that I was thinking about just because I was faced with the reality of, of this being in our family and kind of seeing what it was doing to my grandmother. So that combination of imagery for whatever you're memorizing and then placing it somewhere in our mind that's easy to retrieve, that's the key is so that we can easily pick out all 178 digits with ease. Review and then review through a, a regular kind of frequency is what gets things into your long-term memory. And that's where it gets to a point where you almost don't need to access it via a memory palace because you just know it. It's just in you, right? And it's not gonna go away, at least not for years. Nelson, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. I am really, really good. And for those of you that are watching on video, you will see my background's a little different because I'm in Rome, Italy, and I'm in the kitchen because the kitchen has the best Wi-Fi in the whole Airbnb. So here we are. But I am looking out at the Pantheon and just to my right is the Vatican. So that is really cool. And a side note, today we went down to go check out the Vatican and I looked up and the Pope was doing a service. It was the first time in my life that I ever experienced it. It was really freaking cool. Wow. I'm jealous. That sounds amazing. Cool stuff. All right. So I'm super excited to have you on the show, mostly because you're a memory champion and I can't remember what I did yesterday. So I'm super excited that you're going to be here and maybe you can dispel some of the myths that I have in my head that I'm just getting old and I can't remember things. So I think a good place to start with you would be to take you kind of back to England, take you back to Wimbledon, right? So you were born in the UK in Wimbledon, but you grew up in England, France, and the US. So my first weird question is, do you feel more English, French, or United States? I definitely feel at this point in my life, American. Um, But when the World Cup comes around, that's a whole thing. Because add to that, my mom's technically, she's Belgian, uh, Flemish, Flemish Belgian. And so, you know, we have Belgium, France, England, Mm-hmm. You know, in the soccer team is U.S. I don't even care about for soccer. So, but I definitely identify my roots being European, probably French more than anything, just because mm. that's kind of what was in our culture at home uh, in the cooking and 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 the languages we spoke. So, yeah. But I remember when we moved from England. 
the last time, I was very reluctant to give up my uh, feeling of being a Brit. And I have a UK passport. I still use it to travel a lot, but usually to simplify visas and stuff like that. But now you can't you because of Brexit, you can't use that to live in the EU anymore, right? That's over. I know. Yeah. And I'm pretty bummed about that. You know, it used to be, that's kind of why I kept it is so I'd have this past potentially live anywhere with my family. But now I, my wife has some ancestry in Italy. So I, I feel like there's a way to maybe get some Italian citizenship for her. And then that might take over what we had with the UK passport. I don't know. <laughs> well, I can help you with that because I have an Italian background and I have a lawyer right now that's working on getting me Italian citizenship oh, okay. and I know all about it. So we can, I can help you out with that. I will definitely um, ask you about right. that. <laughs> okay. So I want to take you back now to Miami. You graduated from the University of Miami and you wrote a thesis on automated reasoning. What the hell is yep. that? And why did you do it? Yeah. So I've always been interested. Well, I first started uh, studying physics. That's actually what I went to grad school for. I was getting my PhD and kind of partway through that program, I realized everything I was doing was with computers anyways, my my research. And I wanted to do something that was going to be current. I I saw a lot of my peers in in the physics grad department and they were there for seven, eight years working on their, you know, dissertation or whatever. And it was some tiny little esoteric problem that, I don't know, would get stuffed in a book somewhere on a shelf that barely anyone would reference. And okay, maybe that's interesting. But for me, I wanted something like cutting edge that I could get a job in and and make a difference right now every day. And so I, I switched to computer science. And what interested me the most over in that field was things that mimicked kind of like how we make decisions and how we think in a way AI. So automated reasoning is kind of an a corner of artificial intelligence in the sense that it makes logical deductions from information to create an outcome. So it's basically just AI with logic. If you've ever studied for the LSAT or, or you know, done some of these logic problems or puzzles, um, that's kind of what I was doing, but a computer, writing computer programs that solve those. Really interesting. I recently interviewed somebody who is <clears throat> in the world of AI, but she's training, maybe it's VR. I don't know. She's training Uh the, she's training emotional intelligence into the intelligence that is AI or VR, one of those things, which I thought was a sort of an interesting field because I think we're all terrified that, you know, um, the aliens are going to come, you know, they're going to take over the world. We're going to have like a Will Smith movie on our hands, but, but that's not exactly what you are doing these days. And I want to slowly start looking into memory. So in 2009, you entered the world of memory sport. So one does not think of memory and sport together as a word. What was the trigger? And maybe you can explain what memory sport is. Yeah. So I, well, at that time, you know, I was still doing my studies in computer science. My grandmother was struggling with Alzheimer's disease And it was kind of getting to the end. And eventually in 2009, she passed away suddenly due to related causes. And, you know, memory had kind of become more and more of a thing that I was thinking about just because I was faced with the reality of, of this being in our family and kind of seeing what it was doing to my grandmother. It was just really obviously terrible, but also interesting in a way. I mean, I just had never experienced it so close 
to home. And it was just bizarre seeing someone lose their memories and what that actually meant to her personality and our relationship and everything. It was just kind of eye-opening. So I was reading a lot of books about memory at the time and kind of learning about some techniques that were out there. I didn't even know that. And I finally stumbled down this rabbit hole of competitive memory championships or this competitive world and was just blown away at the things that some of these people were doing. And above all, these were people that were just average Joes, supposedly, who had learned some memory techniques and practiced as if it were like playing the piano or you know getting stronger at the gym. And that I had never thought of before. And that kind of hooked me in. And the rest is kind of history. Your grandma, Josephine was her name, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, we, we called her something else, more affectionate, but yeah, Josephine. Yeah. What, what did you call her? Madus, which... Madus. Which means my sweet, you know, my uh, mi dolce, I guess would be Italian, Italian or something version, like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My wife does, definitely does not call me that. That's, that's really cool. Before you go on, I want to ask you something <clears throat> that popped in my head and I hadn't thought about, I hadn't thought about this until it just popped in my head. Have you been following Tony Bennett and his Alzheimer's? No, no. Okay. So, no, no Tony Bennett, right? Of course. Yeah. Okay. So last year, maybe the year before, I'm not sure he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and it happened really, really quick where wow. you know he's been, he's been touring for a thousand years. He's like literally like, I don't know, 90 yep. something. Right. And he's just been just nonstop touring for 70 years or something. And then he got Alzheimer's and 60 minutes just did a report with him. And he's a very typical Alzheimer's patient. Like if you look at him, he's got that vacant stare. He's got that sort of what they call pill rolling tremor where his hands are like rolling like a pill. And he just looks like a shell of himself. But when he gets behind the piano, he comes back alive. And he had a gig at Radio City with Lady Gaga. And they were in his house and they were practicing for the show. And he didn't know her name. He'd done many albums with her. He didn't know her name, didn't know who she was. And then they cut to the doctors and they were talking to the doctor and they said, you know, he had wired the tracks in his brain so heavily for music that it's big, thick bundles now. And he's just able to access that information very quickly. So the reporter said, do you think, you know, he'll ever remember your name again? And she said, I don't know. All I can do is hope. Then they cut to Radio City and he's on stage. And then she walks out. And as she walks out, he says, ladies and gentlemen, Lady Gaga. And like everybody freaks out that he said her name and she starts crying. And it's a fascinating thing. The work that you're in right now, because even Alzheimer's patients, if something is hardwired in the memory, in the brain, you can sort of override even disease. So with that story, I'm wondering for you, like, have you found a way to override even like what, what your grandmother went through? The answer is no. I mean, it's, it's, it's just that, and that's a great example. Thanks for sharing that. I, I hadn't heard that story, but it just shows you just how little we, we really know about the memory. You know, we can make these generalizations, but there's there's a lot more going on. The the experiences that we have in our life and how they're encoded and how the 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 neurons connect and the pathways that are more strengthened than others, you know, for example, through music, when someone's spent their whole life playing songs and, and writing music and performing. But you know, with some of the techniques that I've I've mastered, you know, you do have a better sense of control of a lot of that information. Now, 
I don't know. I'm not in my 90s yet. I don't know how that will translate, but I always get this question, you know, do you think what you're doing now, Nelson, will help your older self, you know, if or when you start getting Alzheimer's uh, disease? And my answer is, you know, I don't know, but I, I like to think that with the tool set and the habits that I've formed pertaining to memory, I feel like that will at least save me some time before you know, that demise happens if that happens. So I, I feel like there has to be some benefit to that there, whether it's even, you know, a few months to a year that it helps push back or, or stave off Alzheimer's. I don't know. Hey, it's Rob. I want to jump in and take a quick second to say you got to get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you want to work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, so let's let's dig into giving people sort of the crazy things that you've done. Like I, I, I had to, I'm going to ask you because I feel like okay. my research is wrong. There's no way it's right. <laughs> I, I can't believe it, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Okay. So if my research is right in 2010, you broke the U S record for memorizing the most numbers in five minutes, which is 178 digits. Okay. Yeah. So I want to stay here for a minute and use this as a launch pad to help people. So first of all, is that right? That's right. And I'm embarrassed. It sounds like such an embarrassing number because <laughs> that's it, a long time ago. But embarrassing in a good way, right? You mean you mean like impressive embarrassing or you mean like No, I don't I, I at the time, yeah, I thought it was impressive, but now, and now you don't I, think that's impressive? No. <laughs> people can't remember a phone number. How, you, I know. I'm at 178 digits. Most people can't remember seven. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, that notwithstanding, it's so interesting that you find that embarrassing. There was once a time where you couldn't do that. Exactly. Where you couldn't remember yeah. 178 digits, right? Yeah. What were the strategies that you put in place and trained on so that you can memorize 178 digits in five minutes? Yeah. So it all comes down to, you know, and I had to learn this, I didn't know, is finding a way to convert complicated information, like a number, that's that's a great example, into a relatable, meaningful image in my mind of something that, you know, elicits all sorts of emotions and makes all my senses light up in my mind. So numbers don't do that necessarily. I mean, you may look at a couple numbers and be like, oh, you know what? That's the same Jersey number as Shaquille O'Neal, or that's 07. That's kind of like James Bond, 007. I kind of could think of that. But to, to, to be able to do that for all combinations of two-digit or three-digit numbers, that's that's tricky. So you know, I came up with a system to translate all those numbers into relatable images for me. And then the next step is what do you do with those images? How do you keep them straight in your mind? You know, like doing that for a few digits, sure, but for 178 digits in a row, that's doesn't make that necessarily any easier. So the second step is kind of figuring out how to structure those images and organize them. Um, and there's this memory uh, technique called the memory palace that a lot of us at these championships employ to be able to do these feats that seem impossible where you're memorizing large amounts of information. So mm -hmm. that combination of imagery for whatever you're memorizing and then placing it somewhere in our mind that's easy to retrieve. That's the keys is so that we can easily pick out all 178 digits with ease is, is kind of the, 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 the basic process. 
So, you know, I remember when I was in school and I was trying to remember something, you know, we always come up with a mnemonic and it was always nasty, dirty, sexy mnemonics, right? So <laughs> it was like the sluttier the mnemonic, the better the, better. the memory yeah. recall, because it had, you know, for a dude, he's going to remember that more than anything else. And yep. I'm not quite sure. And I guess this is the magic of your products. But I'm not quite sure how you would take the number, you know, nine and make it in any way that you can remember it other than the number nine. And maybe we can, you know, get into that a little bit. Sure. But I have uh, a question. I'm living here now um, in Italy. I've been here for four months and I am in the process of trying to learn Italian. And there are things that are very confusing, as you can imagine, trying to learn another language. Like, for example, the word Fattoria, F-A-T-T-O-R-I-A, I look and my brain goes, oh, that's easy. Factory. No, it's not. It's a right. farm. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at words that look like they're American and I'm making an association incorrectly. So now I have to figure out, well, how do I take a word that look that when I visually look at it looks like factory, but it's not. It's a farm. So yeah. does your techniques help somebody who's trying to learn a language. Sure. And then that's a great common obstacle in, in language learning. Those are called false friends because they sound like things you would assume it to be, you know, because there are a lot of words that are from English that are just Italianified, right? I, I mean, or the other way around, it's an Italian word and it's the same in English, like pizza is pizza, right? So anyway, so fattoria, right? Did I say that right? You think, okay, factor, factory, right? But then you learn and, and you try to correct yourself. Okay, this is a farm, not a factory. So there's two ways to do it. One would be just to, you know, try to just associate fattoria, forget about the factory association you already have to something related to farm. So I immediately would think, Okay, there's that keyword fat, right? Fat so I, I would just think of like, yeah, fat farm animals, like fat pig, fat cows, just like and over, you know, over go overboard with these images, right? They're just like in the mud, just like disgusting, overly fat, and the cows can't even walk, you know, that kind of thing. But if you really see like you keep making the mistake of instantly thinking of a factory, then you can almost use that to a benefit and and relate somehow you know, your instant thought, which is a factory and kind of guide it towards what that image could be related to a farm. So maybe it's a factory of getting slaughtered in the factory. Exactly. Right. You know, and, and then, and maybe it's that factory is inside of a farm or a barn house, you know, barnyard or something like that. So, so yeah, so there's different ways. It's, it's all a matter of, of, in terms of actually language learning is coming up with those associations and kind of attaching them to things that you already know, these anchors. All right. Well, how do you do it with a number? So with a number, you know, like I said, there are some that you might just know, like if you said that you said the number nine, right? Maybe immediately you think of, you know, nine lives, a cat, right? So maybe you could just say, okay, whenever I think of nine, I think of nine lives. So maybe my image for the number nine would always just be a cat, right? And you make that conscious decision. You know, a lot of these systems I have where I teach people, you know, I, I make them come up with a list, write it down and decide on what number will be what another way to do it is if you're heavily into sports or, or, or yeah, I guess sports or statistics in some way you can use what you know already. And, and then, like I said before, a lot of them, you won't have anything for like 55 or 64. Maybe you think, 
of Nintendo 64. Maybe you played that growing up as a kid. I don't know. So you could picture a Super Mario or something if that's a game you played or what isn't there a, a Beatles song when I'm 64 or something. So maybe you think of the Beatles, right? But again, that's hard to do e- evenly and fairly for all, you know, two digit numbers, let's say. So then you come down to, okay, maybe I can systemize this a little better and uh, come up with kind of words for the numbers. So then you need some kind of phonetic code to translate the numbers to letters. So I basically take all the digits, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. That's all there is. And give them a letter association for whatever I can come up with any kind of mapping, right? You know, 0 uh, could be... Well, let's oh. say 1 could be an A. Yeah, one zero could be an O. Um, whatever you decide. And there are dedicated systems out there that are already set. Somebody came up with them and people decided it was good, but it's not the end all be all. You can come up with your own if any others make sense to you. But anyways, once you have that, then let's say a two digit number like 55, depending on the system you use, uh, one of the systems, for example, makes five and L. So you would have two L's, LL. So maybe that image could be LOL, right? Like, and maybe you think of the emoji for like someone laughing out loud or what's another one? Seven, two, right? And the system might be, it's a K and an N so, or a K sound. So it could be a can. You can insert some vowels there to make it a full word, but that's the basic process. I don't want to go down. No, but- that's good. That's good. How did people remember phone numbers? You know, I'm 55, right? And I remember, you know, when, when I was dating Joanne Spina in sixth grade, I could still tell you, Joanne's number. Was it because I was trying to get lucky? Like, like what, what, what was it that allowed me to not pass algebra, but to know Joanne Spina's telephone number? How did I yeah. put those seven digits in my head? Was it because of yeah. repetition from dialing or was it because I, I got excited when I called her? What, what, what is it? Yeah, it's a few things there. And, and one is because you had to focus on it. We didn't have an iPhone that you could just look up her name and just press a button. You had to be able to dial that. Otherwise, what was the alternative? You were going to maybe have to look it up in the directory, which who knows where that was. And and maybe you didn't even know her last name. You had to maybe ask a friend. It was complicated. Add to the fact that you liked this girl, you sure as heck just wanted to know her number. So, and the repetition as well, you know, I, a lot of my numbers from when I was a kid, our house number, my best friend's number, I can still rapidly say it or imagine myself dialing it on a keypad. You know, and it's just through repetition and the sheer fact that you had to focus on knowing these numbers because otherwise you would have to look it up and it wasn't as easy as as it is now to access them. So we don't do that anymore. So we don't know any numbers. You know, everything's just a, a, a quick search away in our phone. What's the hardest thing for you now to memorize? I know that you you won the USA Memory Championship four times, 2011, 12, uh, 14, 15. You're, you were also the first American to memorize a deck of cards in under 60 seconds, right? What's the thing for you now that you don't have a system for or you do have one, but it's just hard? What, what's the thing that's the most difficult for you? I think the most difficult, text. And then that can vary, right? I mean, you could have like a children's book text that's very simple, but you could also have a very technical textbook, right? I don't know in what case you'd have to memorize that, but just memorizing text in general is always challenging just because there's so many words and filler words, right? And a lot of those filler words like uh, the, which, that, those, you know, like 
how do you visualize those things? It's, it's tricky. So, you know, it's, it's hard to memorize text or lines or uh, script and get it perfect because, you know, sometimes in language you can say, you know, like the cat went to the, the, the grocery store, but you can also say a cat went to the grocery store and it's, yeah, it's different, but it's also kind of like the gist of it's the same, you know? Right. Um, so it can depend. Does it matter that you, you, you say that so differently or can you get away with it? You know, are you saying things verbatim, like reciting a, a poem and a speech, or are you giving a speech where it's just, you got to hit the key points and whatever you say and kind of around it and in between is okay. So making the, the point I'm making is that it's so flexible and, and there's a lot of differences in different scenarios that it makes it quite complicated. And there's no like real system, you know, you just kind of have to improvise as you go. I have some friends who are actors um, who've either done Broadway or movies. And it's always freaking amazing to me at how they can take a script and do a television show like every week or a yeah. movie where they've got pages of dialogue and they can just read it and they can recall it. So is yep. there a natural gift that some people have or like what 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 is it that allows those people to do the text that you're referring to much more easily than other people? Yeah. And, and I've heard from different actors, uh, some different techniques that they have. And I, but I think before that even is they get good at it because they do it so often, you know, it's their livelihood. They have to be able to do that. Um, otherwise they're not going to have a career, you know, but I, I have heard of people using a memory palace like idea when learning a script based on Let's say if you're performing on stage, you know, kind of either verbal cues from people you're having a scene with or visual cues in terms of where you're standing or where the scene is happening on the stage. You can use those as ways to help you remember the line to come, you know, also being invested in the character you're playing and trying to really imagine and visualize the emotions and what they're doing and what they're trying to tap into as if you were the real person goes a long way with making things stick. If you're trying to memorize just the letters, the words and the letters that represent those words as they are on the page, that's so abstract. You know, if you can add meaning to things, that's when your memory kind of starts to, to light up, you know? All right. What is a memory palace? You've mentioned that a few times. What is, can yep. you give me like a, uh, I know you have courses that go deep into stuff like this, but tell me like, like just high level. What is it? Sure. In general, a memory palace is a familiar place, you know, a, a spatial location like your house, could be your office, the way, the, the path you take to work. And it's used to place or imagine or stick the images of whatever you're memorizing along a path. And the idea is that when you're memorizing something, you, you jump into your memory palace and start imagining the images along the way during, through this palace or this house or whatever. And then later on, when you need to recall the information, it helps serve as a, an anchor. You know where it is. It's at this memory palace. And no, no, have to, yeah, on the TV, you know, on your couch, through your house, you know, let's say you have a list of 10 items for your grocery list or something. You can sprinkle those throughout your house, you know, starting at the front door, then the entryway, then the, the living room TV and so on. And when you want to pick up those images to remember what you placed there, all you have to do is think of that same pathway, which you know, like the back of your hand anyways, because it's your house. And you can convert those images back to what you actually memorize. Do you and ever have an issue where you start memorizing 
you use the memory palace and you go, okay, on top of the TV, you know, let's say somebody's in college on top of the TV, I'm putting the chemical formula for Teflon or whatever it is, right? You got it on top there. And then you have another course that you're taking and, but the TV is already used. That's, that's Teflon up there. Is that ever an issue where you start running out? Like your, like your palace starts to become overrun with all kinds (laughs) of stuff. Has that ever happened? Yep. But the, 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 the way this works really is you have a, or you build kind of a Rolodex of, of memory palaces that you can use for a multitude of things. And you'll be surprised, you know, obviously I'm saying start with your house or start with your apartment. You only have one of those, but you can also use old places you, you lived in or places you were, you grew up in or, you know, buildings from where you go to school, your classrooms, the, the limit to what could be a memory palace is, is, is unlimited. And the size of them is also, you can make them small, you can make them large. And the idea is that when you're memorizing something new that you want to keep forever, let's say you're, you know, you're in a chemistry course and you want to remember everything that's important from that course, maybe you create a specific memory palace for that information. And then that just serves as a house for that information for all time. You don't touch it ever with anything else. So it never gets interfered. But there are things like day-to-day, like your to-do list or stuff you just need for a little while, and then you don't need it. You can have like a, a few memory palaces that you just cycle through and then eventually just reuse. And hopefully by the time you reuse it, you've forgotten what you put there a while ago, you know? So there's this idea of kind of memory palace organization and 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 usage that has to be taken into account. You just you don't just create just one, you know. Okay, I want to jump in for 15 seconds and say if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. So we have this idea of like short and long-term memory, right? Not an idea, there is short and long-term memory. So I think that I've been told in the past that you can't really hold on to more than two or three things in short-term memory effectively. So in other words, you and I are having a conversation right now, and I have a question that I want to ask you, or there's something in my head. Without me looking at my notes, I can really only hold so so much in my brain. So how do you address short-term versus long-term memory in processes like this? Yeah, well, I'd even argue that there's kind of three types of memory. There's working memory, short-term memory, and long-term memory. And <laughs> working memory is really what your brain can process kind of like in a working order, meaning it's what it can hold until it's full in the moment, and then it just drops, right? So think about like you get a code on your phone to access you know that account, and it's like a six or seven-digit number, and you're kind of just repeating it to yourself until you type it, and then it's gone. Right. And if you don't repeat it to yourself, it's it's gone, you know? So that's just like what our, our mental buffer is naturally allowing us, right? Now, the next step, short-term memory, is if you take that working memory information and you process it in some way, and some way can be as simple as, you know, intently reading it and kind of giving it some kind of extra meaning to as far as turning it into an image based on your number system and putting it in a memory palace. All right. So that keeps it for longer and varying in how you do that, thinking about it will extend its life a certain degree. Not forever. It's not long-term memory. These memory palace techniques do 
keep it for longer, but you will eventually forget it unless you review and then review through a, a regular kind of frequency is what gets things into your long-term memory. And that's where it gets to a point where you almost don't need to access it via a memory palace because you just know it. It's just in you, right? And it's not going to go away, at least not for years. So yeah, those are kind of the, the, the three things. But I'll, I always say with memory palace techniques and memory strategies, it's, it's to get information into your short-term memory fast. And then if you want to put it into your long-term memory, you just have to review that information. Okay. This is really interesting to me. So this is going to fall into the woo-woo, weirdo, woo-woo stuff. But like, where, where is this going? Like We've got a brain. It's a lump of gray matter, right? If we open the skull, we got... Like I just had dinner the other night and on the menu was brain, right? It was like calf brain or some (laughs) Italian shit. And I'm looking at it. I'm like going like, like, it's just a gelatinous, nasty thing. Yeah. Where, like, do you ever wonder, like, like, where is that? You know, you, you, you held the, the national record for memorizing the most names in 15 minutes. You, you memorized 235 names in 15 minutes, which I'm going to ask you about in a second, but like, where did those Where names go? <laughs> like, like, can I open you up and find Luigi? Like, like, where, <laughs> like, do you ever wonder about that? Do you yeah. ever think about that? It, it blows my mind, you know, and you think about just people of our age, it's just like you've had so many experiences, so many things, and some things are readily available. Some things are buried there and you suddenly or one morning might wake up and something reminds you of something you haven't thought about in years and and you didn't even know that you still remembered it right and where is that where is it tucked in and and I'm not a neuroscientist so I don't know I'm sure there's better explanations to this but you know our our brain is a network of of neurons and and things connecting and and speaking to each other and you know like in the Tony Bennett case the, the music kind of connectivity is probably a lot thicker and and more well traveled easier to kind of connect and wire and access while other stuff isn't so well connected. And that's kind of what Alzheimer's eats away at are those, those connections. So yeah, it's not even necessarily clear to me where all that stuff lives in in our minds, but you know, there's just, there's billions and billions of, of neurons in our brains that are just firing in different ways and different combinations of ways when we think about certain things. It's yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. There was a uh, there was a podcast that Malcolm Gladwell did. There was a reporter Brian something or other. I'll, I'll, you, people people will message me on it. And essentially, the story is that he was he was in a plane. There was two helicopters. He was in uh, Afghanistan and he was doing an embedded reporting thing. And the, the I'm not a uh, helicopter, not a plane. The helicopter and he was following two helicopters. He was in the back, and the first helicopter got shot down and was forced to land. And he was forced to land. And he goes on David Letterman and he starts talking about it and his stories started to change. You remember I heard this? Yeah. Yep. His story started to change when he first landed. He told the truth, the truth. He told exactly what happened. But by a year later, he was the one that was in the helicopter and got shot down. And he tells the story out. and the brain they have this this thing that I, I want to ask you about it. I don't know if you know about this, but they, they call it like these flashbulb moments that happen. And the brain starts conflating information. And so then Gladwell references this thing where they've they've done reports with people about where they were when 9-11 happens. And every year they call them and say, hey, where were you when 9-11 happens? And they write it down. And so since 9-11, they've been doing this. 
It's like 99% of them, like not even like it's almost all of them tell a different story every year as the year goes on. I was in, I was, I know exactly where I was. I was folding clothes in the laundry room. I know exactly where I was. I was in my daughter's bedroom and I was putting her to sleep. I know exactly. And it's like, our brain does these weird things. So what, what's your thoughts on that based on memory? Anything hits you when I, when I tell you that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I often use 9-11 as an example because, you know, I talk about how we don't really remember much of what happened to us even last week, you know, but we all remember where we were on 9-11 and to a, to a degree, you know, it's not like we're suddenly there able to view exactly what happened detail by detail, but there is an extraordinary amount of detail, not to say that it's entirely accurate and that it can't be skewed, but I think the general gist of it is probably true. But you're right. I mean, it's, it's, and I, I don't know what necessarily is happening there over time, but our brain does that. I mean, I've seen that on some brain shows where they talk about witnesses from crimes and stuff and what they think they saw or what they actually saw or what we they fill in the gaps, right? We fill in the gaps with different things. Yeah. And, and it can be influenced, right? I mean, there's, there's, if you hear somebody else's account who was there with you and it's slightly different, you'd be like, well, maybe you're right. Maybe, you know, maybe. maybe if you're more confident, you'd ignore it. But maybe if you're a little more able to be convinced, you, you slightly skew it towards the other person's. I went to, yeah. uh, I went to a party the other night and it was like, I think, uh, think, think Tom, Tom Cruise and eyes wide shut. It was like, okay. not, not, <laughs> Not like uh, uh, that's, a, that's a special kind of party. Not not creepy. It wasn't a swinger thing, but okay. it was like that. It was in a palazzo. Masks and everything. Well, sort of. We were in. Uh, you can look on my Instagram. It was. It was. There's a society. They, the society they call it in in Florence. It's basically a bunch of guys that get together and and everybody throws money in for a crazy party. And this was like a kilt okay. party, but it was done in a palazzo, and it was like nobody was in masks or anything, but it was in this palace. It was like. It was literally like opulence. opulence. It was over the top. Okay. So you, I mentioned earlier that in 15 minutes, you remember 235 names. So I walked in there and my friend who's Italian invited me. I'm I'm only living in Italy for four months. So I, I don't know anybody. And we walk in and, you know, it was this barrage of introductions. It was like, this is Luigi. This is Linguini. This is <laughs> one after the other. Right. And I'm trying to like, remember anything. So when I saw that you memorized in 15 minutes, 235 names, that would have been one hell of a party trick if I could have pulled that off. How would you advise me in the next time I'm in a setting where I'm just getting blasted with, oh, I want to introduce yep. you to this one. I went, how, how, do you, how do you remember names? Yeah. So before I kind of go into techniques, let me just make sure it's clear that the 235 names is in a competition setting, right? And I'm not at a party. There's not everybody dressed up and talking and noise and, and beautiful things happening around me. Um, I'm staring at a piece of paper with photos of people that don't change, right? So that's like an ideal situation, okay. right? Okay, um, but still, I've, I've done the, the, the real life name memorization at events. That's kind of one of the things I do to get it kicked off is I'll schmooze a little bit before I go on stage, talk to people, learn their names. They don't know I'm doing that. And then on stage, I'll be like, if I talk to you, stand up. And then I just rattle off, um, as many names as I was able to get to. And, and the most I've done is around a hundred, you know, and it can depend, right? I mean, in, in real life, 
people aren't on a piece of paper and you can just look at them and get their name and move on. You have to talk to them and be normal and sociable. And, and it can depend. Maybe you are really interested in this one person. So you don't really get to talk to many other people's name uh, get to get their name. So it's a lot more fluid in, in real life situation. But the, the, the basic concept of how to memorize a name is, is the same. You learn a name, you hear the name. First of all, you want to be paying attention. That's maybe the number one thing to, to note in 2022. Don't be looking at your phone. Don't be thinking of the next cool thing you want to say. Focus on the person's name, right? If that's really what you're after is to learn people's names. And once you have that mindset, then you, you turn the name into a picture. So whatever it might sound like, what it, what it reminds you of, if you know a cousin with that name or a celebrity or a character from your favorite show, whatever, come up with a picture for that name and then attach it or anchor it much like we do to the positions in a memory palace, but to something on their face, some feature that you notice. And you know, when you're meeting someone, typically you look them in the face. So you should be able to notice something and it can be something pretty, attractive, ugly, just something noticeable. It doesn't, there's, they don't even have to think about, oh, I'm being rude here. You're not telling anybody what you're looking at. It's just is what it is. Whether it's a mole, a big nose, beautiful eyes, doesn't matter. And then you combine them. You attach the image and somehow relate it to the thing, the feature that you've chosen. Um, now, in real life, you know this is a process and you're having conversations and a lot of people are firing names at you or pulling your attention away to meet somebody else over there. So what you have to kind of get good at is the speed at which you do this, which is practice. And the second part is, is maybe having go-to images for a lot of common names. So, and this comes through practice as well. And then the other thing is also, you know, you want to get good at kind of navigating the conversations you have so that you have time to do this. And it can be as obvious as, you know, bring up the name and talk about the name with the person. Be like, oh, that's an interesting name. Where did you get that from? Is that, are you named after someone or that's an unusual name? How do you spell it? You know, stall, right? People love talking about their names and themselves. So it's not like a, a weird conversation for a party, you know? So those things kind of, those things combined uh, can help you master memorizing an entire room. All right. So let's say, Sorry about the church bells in the background, but I am in Italy and the church That's bells are going man. off. Yeah. So it's a holiday here. So they're like going okay. off every freaking 15 minutes. There's always a holiday here. So, okay. My name is an interesting name. So, well, let me just ask you before I, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to put this on you. If you don't think this, when you, if you were trying to remember, memorize my name, Robert Murgatroyd, what would you do? All right. So Robert, is fairly common. And I have an image for Robert already. One of my best friends growing up was named Robert and he's a DJ. So whenever I think of Robert or me to Robert, it's always this kind of like action of someone being a DJ, like with the hands, you know, on, on records. Right. So that's, that's done. Now the next, next part, and this is sometimes you only learn a first name. So maybe that's enough, but sometimes you have the full name, right? So Murgatroyd is an awesome last name, by the way. <laughs> and it reminds me of, I don't even know if it's correct, but Megatroid or, or something from Transformers, right? I don't even know well, if this it's is correct. So, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this, this is interesting. If somebody is younger than me, they will say exactly what you just said. They'll, okay. say, they'll say, isn't it, weren't you like a Transformer or something? <laughs> and what you're trying to say is Megatron and Megatron, that one's okay. a Transformer. If somebody is older, they will say... Wasn't that like Snagglepuss or something? 
on a cartoon where he said heavens to Murgatroyd. So I can always tell sort of how Excuse old me. somebody yeah. is because they'll either say Transformers or they'll say Snagglepuss. So I guess the reason why I want to use my name is because my name is pretty easy because it's a weird name. So you can remember it. But I want to ask you a question about Robert. So if Robert is the DJ and you remember and you meet 10 Roberts over the course of, I don't know, yeah. the next it's a common name. Right? So you meet a lot of sure. people. Do you just associate and go, oh, DJ, 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 because it's 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 your you know, it's your thing for Robert? Yes. Yes. But, you know, that, and that, that might sound like, oh, it's going to be confusing. But remember, it's it's not just thinking DJ, DJ, DJ. It's relating that concept or image of a DJ to something unique about that person. And let's say even if all of those Roberts have a mole, right? That's the feature that I notice. If that's the obvious thing that I notice, I'm not going to shy away from using that as well as the DJ. So technically, in effect, for all five of those Roberts, I'd be thinking DJ, mole, DJ, mole, right? But even still, it's all unique because your mole or that Robert's mole, it's never going to be the same. It's it's always different, first of all, in appearance in some way. But secondly, also in the instance and the, the moment that you've met the person and where they were and what was happening, that's a lot of stuff that happens at the same time that we're not even really conscious of or, or process, think that we're processing, but we are. So me memorizing a DJ on this Robert's mole you know, at this point in the party versus another one later, that counts for something that they're, they're unique instances and that something else was talked about, like they're, they're separate. So you have to give your, your, your memory a lot of credit in the sense that it's doing other things that you don't think it is in the process of adding that information of a DJ on the mole. Let me ask you a reverse question. So I go to Greece, everybody's Nick. There's Nick, there's my cousin, Nick, there's my uncle, Nick. Have you met my child, Nick? And uh, this is Nikos. Okay. How do you remember 48,000 Nicks and differentiate them? Because you can, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's like calling somebody Anthony in Italy. I mean, there's a million of them, right? So how do you differentiate when somebody, when something becomes the opposite, it's no longer unique. It's commonplace. Right. I mean, if that's, if that's truly the case, and I, I, I don't know if you're, how much you're exaggerating, but <laughs> a little, if, if you, there's a lot of Nicks. So you, what you could do is just not memorize the Knicks, right? Just memorize yeah. the ones that are Knicks. And then if you don't have an image coming to mind, you just know it's a Nick or there's a high probability that it's a Nick. <laughs> <laughs> just run it. It's pretty, it's pretty much going to be Nick. All right. Yeah. So as we wrap up, I want to ask you a couple of questions, but I am curious. I understand that you've helped Mark Cuban, Sarah Blakely. Could you share a little bit about what you're able to discuss? I don't know if you, they made you sign NDAs where you can't, but what was it? What was the experience like working with a Mark Cuban or a Sarah Blakely? You know, yeah, it's it's all first of all pretty surreal when you're sitting there with them. And they've I've worked with them in different capacities. Mark Cuban was for a show where I was his coach for the show, and then he had to perform what I taught him. And, How do you and do? it was amazing, amazing. Uh, it was on Brain Games. You can you can watch it actually if you can find the episode. I forget oh, the episode I'll link, we'll link it up in the show notes. Yeah. And with Sarah and her husband, you know, it was more of a private thing. I, I can't go into too much detail there, but. You know, in general, when I work with these high-profile clients, they, I'm always amazed at how just regular they are. You know, um, I was for sure thinking, you know, Mark Cuban would think that he knew it all and that he would just like not be interested. But he was so 
I, I feel bad saying that I assume this about him, but I know he's a smart guy, but I, I didn't think that he would gobble up what I was feeding him so easily and quickly. Super sharp guy, even when it came to, because we did something really complicated with numbers, binary numbers, and he was like all over it. So, you know, they're, they're, they're just like us, <laughs> you know, but oh, he can't be billionaire because he's curious. So there's no question. Same with Sarah. You know, it's, it's the, they are smart people and they pick up things. And that's, that's how they got to, to yeah. where they are, you know? She's incredible. I've never met him personally. I lived in Atlanta for 25 years where they live. And a friend of mine owns a restaurant and he's his best friend. Actually, he wrote about him in the, in the book. And, you know, one day we're, we're talking about him and I said, God, he's got to be like so impressive. He said, Rob, if he walked in right now, you'd think he was homeless. I said, I said, you kidding me? He goes, no, he's the most normal guy that you could ever imagine. Who so, are you talking okay. about Sarah's husband? Yes, Jesse Itzel, yeah. Yeah. Okay, a couple more questions and then we'll wrap. What do people never ask you? But you wish they did. They never asked me. They, they always ask me about memory. They always ask me about Mark Cuban, but they never <laughs> asked me about this. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Maybe stuff like what do you do when you're not memorizing or climbing or doing the stuff that are super obvious from your profiles. Fair, fair enough. Mountaineering is, uh, we didn't get a chance to get into that. Maybe we'll do a part two. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? I collected comics as a kid. I still have those and, and, and some coins and stuff. I guess I collect books. I have tons of books, but no, I don't really collect much these days. No, just memories. Okay. If you you had to do a TED talk on nothing that you're known for, so we're going to pull out mountaineering, we're going to pull out memory, but it could be on anything you want, anything you have an interest in or a passion for, what would it be? Maybe knitting. I love knitting. Knitting. I remember, that's right. I remember that in the research. You you learn knitting. That's really interesting. I would would love to talk about like the manliness of knitting and and the, the good it does for your brain or something like that. Yeah. That would be a hell of a TED talk. I think that would work because you know, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's great. <clears throat> okay. Last question. We're going to change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? Oh man. Yeah. So your time in Italy. All right. Yeah. Well, first I, I, I'd be curious why you're there, but I'm sure that's, uh, well, yeah, I'd love to know why you're there, but that's not the question um, is, have you taken any cooking classes while you're there? Do you have any interest in that? No, you know, okay. So the reason why we're here is we were living in America. We were in LA and, you know, COVID has been one of those things where it was an incubator, right? It was a lot of pressure and like, we're not going out. We're not coming. And so I just sort of like watched, you know, like school shootings going up and I watched like, you know, storm in the Capitol and Democrats and Republicans and I'm wearing a mask and I'm not wearing a mask and just division. And I had spent some time out here in Italy and I was like, could it really be La Dolce Vita? Could like, can we really live this beautiful Italian life, you know, in Florence? And, you know, it's like a little snow globe that we live in. And we came out, we checked it out and we're like, you know what? Worst case scenario is we'll go out there, we'll move. If we hate it, we can always go back. <clears throat> and we came in and we just absolutely fell in love with the culture and the people and, and all of those things. So we just wanted to make a move that was in, we have a seven-year-old daughter that was in the best interest of raising her. And for me right now, 
growing up in the hills of Tuscany is going to be far more or going to school in the hills of Tuscany is going to be far more impactful than going to school in LA in terms of like her, her life. So it was mostly driven for her and then secondarily for us. And then the other part is we have taken cooking classes here. That's not our primary focus right now. Our primary focus is two things. One is we have a a language teacher that comes twice a week to teach us Italian because that's really super important to us. And two is we have a, an Italian historian, a tour guide that once a week we meet and we go out for three hours and we just literally walk around Florence and she teaches us about the Medici's and she teaches us about all the different things in the city because we're walking around looking at this stuff going like, well, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen, but what is it? Why was it yeah. here? So like we're learning what Baroque, the difference between a Baroque building, a medieval building and a Renaissance building and all the different periods and what was Roman and what's Florentine. And, and so we're literally just learning about all of that. So those two things. And then once we get that dialed in more, then we'll move into cooking right now. We're just eating that's out. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm, 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 that's an awesome move you did for your daughter. I have uh, a three-year-old, a one-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old, and a one-month-old. So, Oh, um, God bless you. God bless yeah. you, man. You are in it. <laughs> Do you have any uh, final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? And of course, we're going to link everything up in the sure. show notes with your products, your books, et cetera. Yeah. If anybody's interested to learn more about the techniques that I teach, you know, my website has a great starting point. It links to everything. Most of my content goes on YouTube. I have pretty good following and I put out videos that are more entertaining than anything, but also informative at times um, on YouTube. So that's another place. And then I have a couple of books published. You can find them on Amazon if you search my name. And I have a a course that goes live every so often that you can uh, find through my website. Beautiful, brother. This was fun. We're going to link everything up so everybody can have it and get a a better better memory. So thank you again for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.